This morning I'd like you to turn to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42. I'm going to read verses 1 to 4, where God says the following. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail, nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. When Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist at the Jordan River, God the Father speaks, this is my beloved Son, which is Psalm chapter 2, in whom I am well pleased, is this verse right here, this passage Chapter 42. You notice that verse number 1 there. My elect one in whom my soul delights and who I am well pleased. We've already established in previous messages that the kingdom of heaven is different than the kingdoms of this world. We've already established that the authority and the power of God is uh, revealed through the principle of servanthood. And we've already discussed this matter that in the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom and the servant are the one and the same person. In the world, that's not so. But in the kingdom of heaven, that's how it it works. I, in this last week, have been attempting to absorb myself in the prophet Isaiah, chapters 40 to 55, some 16 chapters of which I've tried to read through slowly, meditate on, absorb it as much as I can. And this passage that we have just read is part of a package of a a whole larger scenario. And to understand the parts, you've got to understand the whole. So I've been attempting to absorb all those chapters of Isaiah to understand the whole so I can understand this particular part. This passage of scripture is geared to Israel, who is experiencing foreign captivity in Babylon. Jerusalem has been destroyed. The temple has been ransacked and plundered. The Holy Spirit has been lifted, and now the people of God are under a foreign domination on foreign soil. Never in the Old Testament history has the nation of Israel been so humiliated and from their point of view, so God-forsaken. They're in absolute despondency. These chapters of chapters 40 to 55 address the situation and they are intended to give God's people great comfort. 
The idea is overwhelmingly produced that the same God who gave an exodus when Israel was under Egyptian domination in the time of Moses is the same God to those Israelites who are now under Babylonian captivity as well. That he still is the God of the exodus and God intends on repeating the story of the exodus again for them. Now folks, that's good news. That God is just not the God of history. Come on. He's not just the God of history. But he will repeat the story for you and for me. Great comfort. He will deliver them out of Babylon with a mighty hand. But the problem is this. While that sounds so wonderful to those who are under seven decades of foreign bondage. And time and years and decades have passed one after another. Sounds great. But it seems so incredulous. It seems so unbelievable. And what has happened in this passage of scripture, in these 16 chapters of Isaiah, that Israel being in exile is absolutely full of questions. And all of these questions are addressed in these 16 chapters. Listen to some of the questions and the perplexity that is in their heart, their soul, and their mind. How can they explain how they ended up in captivity in Babylon in the first place? Where was God when they needed him? Where was God? Why did he allow this to happen? Does he not have the power to keep his people from defeat? Have the gods and the idols of this world somehow become more powerful than the God of Israel and they have defeated the God of Israel? Maybe God can't keep his promises because maybe God is no longer powerful enough to do these things. Does he really have that power to deliver? And if he could, then why doesn't he? If God could prevent all the wars in the world, why doesn't he? If God could have kept me safe, kept me well, kept me in good health, why hasn't he? These kinds of questions... Are there? Where are the miracles that we were taught to believe in but we never see? Maybe God just isn't faithful. Is God forgetful of his own promises? Does he even want to deliver? Is he bothered? He seems so remote. These chapters are full of questions like that to people who are living in utter despondency. In other words, the faith that has defined them as a nation... The faith they were taught as children, the very fabric of their lives, the scriptures that were drilled into them, embedded into their consciousness, now completely seem totally irrelevant, irrelevant to them. In, this, in, the, in the light of their present circumstances, they're asking questions about what's this all about anyway? What value did my upbringing have me anyway? Is that faith even right? Had they, they begin to wonder in these chapters, had they simply inherited a meaningless tradition down through the generations that never really seemed to make any difference? After all, where is the Almighty God? Some of them went as far as say, does He even exist? If He does, He doesn't seem to care. In other words, in this captivity, and these are all the questions that Isaiah is going to deal with in these chapters, 
Israel has plunged itself into the utmost depths of despair. And Isaiah's task is to speak to that generation and to that despondency. Now, in other words, this is a huge crisis about their faith. Massive crisis about their faith. And Israel, Old Testament Israel, is not the only people who have asked such questions. Today, many people ask the same deep questions. It gnaws away at their faith. It destroys any flickering light that might be in their souls. Why did God not heal such and such a person? Why does God allow such difficult trials in our lives? Can't He stop it if He's all-powerful and all-compassionate and all-loving? Does He not care that I'm in pain? Can He not heal such and such a person? Can He not prevent this thing from happening? Why then should we serve an all-powerful God if He can't prevent evil from afflicting us? Then it gets worse as people ask, is there any observable difference between the lives of those within the church and those within the world? Maybe God isn't as loving and as compassionate as we have been told. And these deep-seated questions get into people very much. It is a fact that many people once believed, and they believed strongly what they were taught, but as life goes on, they tend to give up on the faith because they can't find the answers to these questions that have just been raised. They are unable to find satisfying answers, and so they choose to refuse to live as hypocrites. Some people will remain respectful, but only at a distance. Folks, that's the mindset of Old Testament Israel in Isaiah chapters 40 to 55. Worth reading, do you think? Worth searching out what it has to say? Is it worth listening how God answers and responds to those kinds of questions? And that's why this week I've tried to just absorb these chapters as thoroughly as I possibly could to understand God's solution. All right? All of these thoughts are going to be resolved with a single revelation. And that, once we catch that revelation, it will filter out to answer all of these other questions. And that revelation has got to do with this person called the servant of the Lord. We want answers to those kinds of questions. God is going to give us one figure called the servant of the Lord. If we would understand this revelation, these kinds of questions can be resolved. That's what these chapters are about. So we know from the New Testament that Jesus picks up this role of the servant of the Lord. And he's going to be everything that the servant is to be. So we're going to ask these questions here. Who and what is this servant that Isaiah talks about? What is he like? What's he going to do? What is his purpose? How will he accomplish his aims, his goals, and his purposes? And how is this servant introduced? 
He's introduced in these verses that we read in chapter 42, verses 1 to 4. But we need to realize that before he's introduced, Isaiah takes all of chapter 40 to set up how great God is. And we're all familiar with Isaiah chapter 40. You know, and it ends with, They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. And we're familiar somewhat with the, the great description of the magnesty and, and, the, and the omnipotence of, of, of Almighty God in Isaiah chapter 40. It's very, very inspirational reading. And a lot of people have got a lot of comfort over the years from Isaiah chapter 40. But I don't know a lot of people who have absorbed a lot of chapter 41 of Isaiah because after you see the greatness of our God in chapter 40, this great God is going to set up something in chapter 41 so he can introduce the solution, the answer, in chapter 42. So let's go through this what might see a roundabout way to introduce who the servant of the Lord is. But we need to absorb chapter 41. And let me tell you, I'll just run through it for you in chapter 41, how God sets up this revelation of the servant. In chapter 41, we come across a court scene. The judge has taken his seat. And God is that judge. As a matter of fact, in chapter 41, God is the judge, he's the jury, he's the bailiff, he's the prosecuting attorney. He's the whole court scene, he's every one of those persons. And what God does in chapter 41 is he's going to call all the mighty nations of the world to a court where he's going to ask them all to take the witness stand and to give evidence. All right? Here's the question that all the nations of the world have to answer. First of all, there's this observation that the world is in a mess. Anybody ever notice that? We don't need a whole lot of testimony to figure that one out. The observation is the entire world is in a mess. Now, Here's the question God Almighty is going to ask. Who can bring justice to this world. Who can do it? He's going to ask the question, who is it that can set things right? And in chapter 41, he calls all the mighty empires from across the world. From the east, he calls like Mesopotamia. And all these nations are summoned to the court to settle this question of who can bring justice to the world. The nations from the west, from the Mediterranean coast, they're summoned to give their answer. And when Isaiah makes this cry out, there are powerful nations in existence. If you're a history buff, you might know about the kingdom of Assyria, worldwide empire out to conquer the world. You might be familiar with the, the ravenous Babylon conquering the world. You might be familiar with the Persian Empire attempting to conquering the world. You might be familiar with the Greek Empire, which at this time was formulating all of their philosophies and the classic period of the Greek thinkers. And very quickly after this, Rome is going to emerge as a world empire to conquer the whole world. So God calls all of these 
conquering, mighty, majestic, powerful armies, nations, kings from all over the world, brings it to the court, seeing the world's in a mess, which one of you has got an answer to solve it? That's what's happening in Isaiah chapter 41. Do you, mighty nations, do you have the answer to the problems of mankind? You, mighty empires, can you heal a struggling and a suffering humanity? With all of your pomp, with all of your military might, with all of your luxurious wealth, with all your power, with all your prestige, do any of you nations have anything to contribute on how this world is going to be made right? And he calls all the nations to testify. Now God has called this court scene because those sitting in the benches and watching this debate between God and the nations, is the nation of Israel itself. They're listening to the evidence. They're hearing the case that all these nations are are making. And it's set up for God's people who are full of these questions. God, do you even care? If you're so powerful, then why did you let such and such happen? And why is human life full of all of this kind of tragedy? And there is nobody so righteous as that person. Why didn't you heal them? All of these questions are out there. The the congregation is sitting, listening to God present His case to the people full of these life-perplexing questions. It's designed for Israel to once again have faith in their God. Faith in the covenant that God has made with them. It's designed to, to... to see the deep desire of God to fulfill His promises and for Israel who feels so out of it and so useless, don't even know if it loves God anymore, to inspire them that the call of God on their life is to be fulfilled. He doesn't want Israel to trust in the useless idols of these powerful nations. This is what Isaiah chapter 41 is all about. As God presents his credentials, (laughs) he's building his case. If you read through chapter 41, with very swift arguments, listen to what God knows. It says that God has shown that he has always acted sovereignly in history. He's going to demonstrate from past experience that all of these mighty nations of the world who were on conquest, world empire and conquest, that they were actually nothing but tools in his hands always to serve his purposes. He's going to present the evidence that that's what the nations are to him. They're just tools in his hands that he will, for lack of a better word, manipulate to serve his purposes. (laughs) And God gives that testimony, all those mighty empires listening. And we thought it was us who conquered. And then we realized, no, it wasn't us, but it was the God of Israel who moved us around this chessboard. The Bible says that when the nations heard this evidence, that they are gripped and terrorized by fear at the power of the God of Israel. And then God is going to challenge all of these nations and all of their gods and all of their idols that they serve. And he's going to ask questions like this. Which one of you gods, which one of you idols is able to predict the future? 
I do it all the time. Can you do it? They have no answer to give. And he challenges And which of you idols do you have any power? Do you, can you give any indication of power to change world history? Do you have the power for good? Do you have the power for evil? Are you able, you false gods out there, are you able to announce your intention and then move world powers just to make it happen? Which one of you idols can do that? And if you can't do those kinds of things, you're, you're just an idol and you are nothing but wind and you are nothing but confusion. Interesting chapter, Isaiah chapter 41, as he sets up this whole court scene for the benefit of Israel just to hear it. So as God puts out this challenge, (laughs) what answer can the great thinkers of the world and the philosophers give? At the end of the court scene, listen to God's verdict. Chapter 41 Verses 28 and 29. Listen to God's verdict. I called the whole world assembled to answer these questions. And here it is. I looked, and there was no man. I looked among them. There was no counselor. Who, when I asked among them, none of them could answer a word. My verdict, they are all worthless, their works are nothing, their molded images are nothing but wind and confusion. Behold their idols, behold their works, behold their counsel, and behold all the gods of this world and the mighty empires of the world when it comes to solving the world's problems are useless. Behold their utter futility. Behold. That's how chapter 41 ends. (laughs) And then God says, my turn to show you how this question is going to be answered. What is God's Solution. The world's got nothing to offer. The world has no solutions to the problems of mankind. And if they did have a solution, they haven't got the power to implement it anyway. Chapter 42. Behold my answer. Behold the solution. I'm going to read these verses again. Now that you understand the build-up behind this. Behold. Behold my servant. We're we're talking about empires and nations. We're talking about conquering kings and armies that want to walk across the world and conquer everything. And what does God show? Behold my servant. My servant. Whom I uphold. My elect one in whom my soul delights. In other words, I don't take any pleasure in the rest of this stuff. In whom my soul delights. (laughs) I put my spirit upon him. And he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. 
Listen to his mannerism. He will not cry nor raise his voice. He won't even cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. You empires want to destroy everything in your path to conquer. When he comes across a bruised reed, he won't even step on it. A bruised reed. He won't even break it. Smoking flax. <laughs> it's almost out. There's almost no, no fire in that coal. It's almost gone. Smoking flax. He won't even quench it. But the result is this. He brings forth justice for truth. And through the, his mission and the way he does it, he will not fail and he will not be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth and the whole world will be waiting to hear his voice, waiting for his law. Behold. That word behold means this. You powers of the world, sit up and take notice of how this works. Sit up and take notice of how this works. Let the whole world hearken and attend to this revelation because God's solution to all of those problems that we have already talked about that are in these 16 chapters of the prophet Isaiah, God's solution to all of those questions and to all of those problems and all the problems of the world and making the world right is to present a nameless, unfamous, nondescript, Nobody, a servant, who has no visible sign of authority or power. The kingdom of heaven is nothing like the kingdoms of this world. The concept of authority and power is not to be confused with any worldly thinking whatsoever. The path to righteous accomplishment is not built on models from the world. Not whatsoever. God's answer <laughs> against all the power and the pomp of this world is to present an unnamed servant. And he says, and this is how the world will be put to right. This is how justice will come to the nations. As a matter of fact, Israel, who has become part of the problem, supposed to be the solution to the world, but has become part of the problem, this is how Israel itself will be saved. And God gave a vision and a mandate to Israel that they forsook. They were to be a light to the nations of the world, but they're as much in darkness as the world is. They become part of the problem. But this is how the vision that was first entrusted to God's people, how it will come to pass in His people. How God will take it and bring it all back together. God's solution. Well, when we read through the New Testament, how Jesus acted in the Gospels, 
we discover this. To the suffering and to the weak. You do not read about Jesus coming with a loud voice of passionate debate. He reserved that for enemies. He doesn't come with a loud voice of passionate debate and contention. But instead he comes with a still, small voice of reasonable persuasion. He does not come to crush life, but he comes to develop it. He doesn't come to despise the weak, but to encourage and to raise them up. When Jesus finds multitudes crushed beneath military or political oppression, or multitudes exhausted by the demands of religion, he stoops down to bless them. According to Isaiah, this is how justice is established. This is how the Word of God will be proclaimed around the world. This is how the applications of God's laws that will be expressed in works of mercy and in compassion This is how righteousness will be established. And this is how things will be made right. The world is going to be put to rights by a servant coming to serve people to make the hearts of men right. That's how it's going to happen. That's how it's going to happen. He doesn't do this by the clamor of contentious argument. But he does it with a gentle voice to bruised hearts, and to broken people. And that's how the kingdom of heaven conquers the world. That word justice, well, that's what we expect kings to do. Their job as a king, to give justice in your, in your kingdom. But folks, it's not a king that does it. It is a servant who will accomplish this. And not just in one little corner of the world, but as you read this, throughout the entire world. Let me say it loud, and let me say it clear what the verdict of God is, how this world is going to be made right. It is through servanthood. Say it again. It is through servanthood. If we didn't get it, I'll say it a third time. It is through servanthood that the world will be made right. Not by brute force that only promotes the powerful elite, but as justice for all. How different is the kingdom of heaven from the mighty empires of this present world? How different church is from corporate business. How different churches, how different the relationships of people within the family of God, different than the way the world exists. How different, how different, how different. Isaiah is going to say it over and over and over, and it is repetitive in these chapters, so repetitive because he wants to get the message over. That this, that the servant does not come like the nations of the world. He doesn't come to smash, 
people and then to rebuild an empire for himself. He's not a power-hungry, conquering type of a person. Instead, he's compassionate and has already been said he will not even break a reed that is already bruised. He will not even puff out a dimly lit smoldering wick. Instead, what he's going to do is bow himself down, stoop down to the lowest, and gently trim these wicks to cause it to rest more in the oil. He comes to restore those things that are almost passing away. He supports and he straightens everything that is about to perish. It's repetitive in Isaiah. You don't overcome oppression with more oppression. You don't overcome arrogance with more arrogance. How you overcome the injustices of the world is you do it in quietness, you do it in humility, and you do it in simplicity. And what you do it is you absorb all the evil of the world against you into your own self, and you return only grace back to them. This is how Christians are to live. Absorb the evil against us and return only grace. And Isaiah is going to say, now you understand what power is all about. That is true power. Now notice the description of this this servant of the Lord who's going to bring justice to the world. That there is, what's pointed out very clearly is this. There is no bragging to be found within him. There is no mention of his exploits. He says, the Bible says, there is no self-proclamation as to his own greatness. Everything he does is done with a marked unobtrusiveness. In English that means he never lifts up his own voice. He will never publicly announce his miracles that he did in the past and he will never announce them before they take place. He's not going to draw attention to himself and draw a crowd by simply announcing some great thing he's about to do. Isaiah the prophet says he doesn't do that. When you take that and read that in the New Testament, do we realize how often Jesus asked people who were healed not to publicize it? Do we read in the New Testament how Jesus said, I don't want a huge crowd based upon the fact of a desire to see some public display of something spectacular. That's not how this is built. And how many times do you read in the Gospels where it says he went and hid himself away and refused the attention of those who craved spectacular things? He would not ever play into that for self-promotion. Never, never, never. Is Jesus the mighty Christ? Of course he is. Is he the son of David? Of course he is. Is he the Messiah? Of course he is. Is he God in the flesh? Of course he is. Is he a son of God from eternity? Of course he is. He is all those things. But you read through the Gospels when somebody addressed him as the son of David. He did not deny that he was the son of David. 
He did not deny that he was the Christ. He did not deny he was the Messiah. But you will discover every time Jesus is addressed that way, he immediately changes the topic and he changed and he deflects that title away from himself because that title is loaded with political type of stuff and the world is going to bring the, the population is going to bring those worldly ideas of vast great empires and associate that with that title and so when everybody gives Jesus that title he immediately deflects it away from himself and he refers to himself ambiguously as the son of man every time he simply won't do it. He's tender. But Isaiah wants you to know that tenderness is not to be confused with weakness. It is through the tender mercies of God that justice, the outworking of righteousness, will be established on the earth. The servant is tender towards the floundering, the broken, and the struggling. And yet, through all of his tenderness, he's got a backbone within him. Because the nations of the world will try to take him out. Yet with all his tenderness, he's got a backbone within him that he will be absolutely uncompromising in the assertion of absolute justice and absolute truth. It's not just a possibility that he will make this happen he will actually do it. Folks, he will not fail. But it's not done through prestige or importance. It is done in the role of a nameless, nondescript servant. Tenderness will accomplish what the mighty empires of the world cannot do. Did you catch that one? Tenderness will accomplish what the mighty empires of the world cannot do. So the nations of the world are told, you need to wait for this servant. I've gathered it all here, asked you these questions that plague mankind. Here's my answer. Now here's my recommendation. After I give my verdict, God says, Here's my answer. All you nations out there, all you powerful, elite politicians, wealthy kings, all of you power-hungry things out there in the world, here's my advice to you. Wait for him. Wait for my servant. Wait for him. In the book of Isaiah, you know what that means? They that wait upon the Lord, all you world powers have got to wait for him. What that means is simply this. Turn away from your attitude. Turn away from your sense of self-importance. Turn away from your trust in your worldly efforts here and be an unreserved dependence upon God. You need to learn to refuse to act on your own behalf no matter how long it seems that God delays. Anybody here think God's take too long at times? Anybody? Waiting for His promise, waiting from His promise, you get despondent, waiting. To wait on the Lord means to refuse to act on your own behalf no matter how long God seems to delay.
That's his verdict to all the empires of the world gathered at this court scene. Wait for the Lord. Another question, and I'll bring this to its conclusion. How is it that this servant will succeed where the mighty nations of the world have failed? How is it that the power of the kingdom of heaven is different than the power of the kingdoms of the world? Chapter 42, verses 1 to 3 give you three reasons why this works. Why he can succeed in doing this. Why, if we get this, all these other questions will be settled. Three reasons. Number one, my servant whom I uphold. He's going to succeed because God his Father upholds him. Folks, if you have God on your side, what does it matter how powerful the nations are? New Testament said, if God be for us, come on, if God be for us, who can be against us? God upholds you. A servant doesn't ever act on his own authority. A servant doesn't ever function according to his own resources. The servant derives strength from the one who has called him. Isn't that exactly what Jesus did? I mean, let's remember chapter 40 of Isaiah that introduces this whole thing of how great, how mighty God is, how He, how he throws the stars in their universe and puts the whole in order, how with His finger He digs out rivers and, and oceans and, and, and this mighty God. If that's the God who calls you, and if that's the God who upholds you, please tell me what the puny nations of this world think they're going to do to you. It is God, Almighty God, who upholds this servant. He doesn't act out of his own resources. But he says, Jesus said, I only do what I see my father do. I only say what I hear my father say. Jesus would say, it's not me that does these works, but it's the father that's in me. And because he's upheld by God, God will protect his tenderness. Because he's upheld by God. He's a servant. He's a light that won't go out. And he's a breed that will not be bruised. His light will burn strongly and brightly. And he will go firm and be unbroken in the performance of his task. Why? He will not fail nor be discouraged. Why? Because it is God himself who upholds him in his task. In other words, the Father takes a grip. I just don't want to touch from God, folks. I want to be in His grip. Not just a touch. I want to be in His grip. It's the Father who strengthened Him. Nothing else or nobody else. Folks, that is so opposite to the kings of the world that they have to start making treaties and alliances. I mean, just read chapter 41. What they do, what the world does when they get in trouble and when their pomp and ceremony is not doing it, they start bartering and making trade agreements and, and, and hiring each other's armies. And God says, forget all that. I'll support you. You don't need it. I'll support you. The second reason he could succeed. Oh, I love this one. I, the father says, I delight in him. 
Behold my servant, in whom my soul delights, in whom I am well pleased. Folks, if God loves you, who cares what the rest of the world thinks? I think I'll say that one again. If God loves you, who cares what the rest of the world thinks? Folks, they lose. When God gives you His approval, His love, and His delight, to know that God has this ultimate deep satisfaction in His servant, being become completely secure in the Father, you don't need the approval of men. You don't need it. And that's a good thing because I'll guarantee you this, they won't give it to you anyway. But you don't need it. You don't need their resources. You don't need their approval because it's God who upholds you and God Himself delights in you. So you don't need their reward whatsoever. Nah, you don't need it. Isn't this what enabled Jesus to handle all the rejection and all the criticism he constantly received from mere men in the Gospels? What does it matter if you could say, but my Father delights in me? How secure are you in the Father's love? And the third thing why he succeeds because God says, I put my spirit on them. I put my spirit on them. Folks, to have the presence of God is precious. To be able to come into His presence and experience Him is precious. Not to be taken for granted. You know why He's going to succeed? I put my spirit on them. I put my spirit on on him. Why is he going to succeed? Because the truth is this. Nothing of eternal or spiritual value can be accomplished by human ability. The world doesn't know how to make itself right. They haven't got it. They haven't got it. But I put my spirit upon him. The Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, is the power, is the principle by which God gets things done. It will happen because of the presence and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if I told you folks, but I believe in Pentecost. I believe in the reality of the presence, of the power of the Holy Spirit. Because this servant receives his approval from God, there's absolutely no need for him to seek it from men. Therefore, he never has to lift up his own voice in the streets. He never has to call attention to his own greatness. Oh, you should have seen that miracle last week that we did. Ooh, you should have seen that one. doesn't need to do it. He doesn't have to advertise himself. He doesn't have to paint an image of who he is in the eyes of anybody. He just takes the role. I am just a nondescript, nameless servant who has the approval of God. And this is how the world is going to be made right.
And this is how the problems of the world are going to be solved. Isn't that so opposite to the world? So opposite to the prideful kingdoms of the world who have to publicize their great feats and hold victory parades so everybody can recognize what they did? Why is this so important? Well, it's important for a couple of reasons because folks were learning about Jesus here. And when I can paint a picture that helps us to understand Jesus, I think the Holy Spirit gets happy. This is Jesus. This is the Jesus that we love. This is the Jesus that we serve. But another reason for meditating on this stuff is this. It's a lesson for you. It's a lesson for me. I want to see the power of God. I want to be used as an expression of His light and of His character. If I want to do it, then I have to say this to myself. I say, self, or as the psalmist said, soul, <laughs> talk to himself, he would say, you must be conformed to the image of a nondescript, unnamed servant. Soul, you've got to demonstrate that in every facet of your existence. Then I can discover that for people with such hearts, God turns around and says, there's somebody I can trust with the kingdom. There's somebody I can trust with the authority and with the power. Not just to have a display of power one day, but this is the kind of authority that's going to change the world. And I can give that power and that authority to that person. The power of God is never to dominate or be triumphalistic. It's never to draw attention to itself. The power of God is given to serve. To serve. And to serve. That's how the kingdom of heaven expresses its authority. And so when God wants to cause the world to behold his answer. That's the first lesson he's going to impress upon everyone listening to this court case in this court scene. I don't know about you, but I think the book of Isaiah is pretty fascinating. <laughs> Very interesting. So when Jesus steps into the role of Israel, when Jesus steps into the role of the servant of the Lord, we see how the power of God will be manifest. Read the Gospels in that light, and lots of things will open up to you and make sense. God is a good God. Amen.